And uh, thank you all for being here tonight. I uh, hope and pray that uh, you've been encouraged um, and inspired by these songs and this time of worship. And I hope that you'll join me in God's Word tonight. Uh, John 15, we're going to pick up at verse number 18 and read through the first four of 16 uh, as kind of the, the text kind of uh, bleeds over a little bit into the next chapter, the, the topic and, and the subject that Jesus is talking about. Um, this is one of the more challenging chapters in the Bible to teach. Um, it's very unique, uh, very difficult to preach, uh, or at least it has been for me. Um, I've avoided it up until this point. But when you say you're going to go through the whole book of John, you kind of can't avoid it at that point, can you? Um, it's difficulty is not in its understanding, as in, it's not being, as in it not being clear. Uh, the difficulty of this text is receiving it and accepting it because it's very clear. Have you ever had heard something that was so clear, it was almost too clear, and it made you kind of feel uncomfortable because you couldn't hide behind the murkiness, right? Um, you, you couldn't hide behind, wow, that sounded good, but I don't know what it meant, right? And, and maybe you walked out of church thinking that, and that's, I hope that isn't the way you walk out of our, serv- my serv- our services and services where I preach, um, because uh, that, that, uh, that's not good. Maybe you've heard something before that sounded smart or sounding, sounded inspiring, but you kind of didn't really get anything from it, and that kind of makes you feel religious, uh, right? It makes you feel like you heard something important, uh, but the, the, the disconnect is that there's not, no application. Um, this is not one of those chapters. Uh, this is one of those chapters that is very clear in its uh, message, and it's so clear that it leaves us kind of feeling uncomfortable. Um, but I feel like it's important to understand where this text falls in the Gospel of John, and that makes it more understandable. It doesn't make it any more easy to accept, but it kind of puts it in proper context. So at first, this text feels out of place because it breaks the momentum of these previous passages, this conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples. But I think what we'll learn is that all of this is intentional. Of course, Jesus said it, right? He intended on everything that he said, and he doesn't just bring this up without having prepared and planned to bring it up. And all that came before it was intentionally in this sequence. And and I want to read this text, but I first want to remind you and recap quickly what we've learned as Jesus has been pouring his heart out to his closest followers. Beginning in John 13, Jesus began to really reveal his fullness and and give the disciples, his closest followers, the 11, everything they needed to know from what was about to happen. Now, they didn't know he was about to leave. He tells them he's about to leave. But from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what we've learned. We've heard Jesus talk about the greater things that we're going to do, greater than even he did. He told us about the spirit of comfort he's going to give us. He told us about the joy that comes from abiding in him. And he talked a lot from chapter 13 all the way to 15 about the fruit of love, how the quintessential Christian fruit is loving one another. So we've learned all that since chapter 13, how there are greater things to be done, which that sounds exciting, right? I mean, hey, God's going to let us do greater and deeper and wider things than he even did. I mean, that sounds, you know, really enticing that God has a spirit of comfort for us. I mean, hey, if God's going to give me something and it's about comfort and about strength, then hey, I want all of it that there's joy from abiding in him, that why by abiding in him and being on the vine that is Christ, that we grow and become more fulfilled. I mean, again, what's better than that? And that the, the, the Christian fruit that we should all bear is love. And, 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 and again, you know, what bad thing comes from loving people, right? And what bad thing come, comes from being loved? I mean, you hear these things that Jesus has taught us through the last few chapters, and that's just scratching the surface. I mean, chapter 14 is one of those just most memorable texts in the entire Bible. He promises us heaven. He talks about how he's the way, the truth, and the life, how he brings us to God, right? Uh, he's given us so much and promises so much, 
All these things are some of the best parts about being a Christian, if not encapsulating all the greatest things about following Jesus. So he's been teaching this as he led the disciples um, through a, a few different locations. Now, right, he began this in the upper room, and then he leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus led the disciples from the upper room down the stairs, through the streets, that hours later, and I can't state that more clearly, just hours later, the very streets that he and his disciples discreetly passed through to exit the city, those streets will be filled with rioters shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The disciples didn't know this, but Jesus knew this. As he stepped on those, those paths, as he walked out of the city, he knew that he would be crawling out of the city in a few hours with a cross on his back to die. As he led them across the valley of Kidron, as he went up the winding path that would be, soon be filled with bands of guards and hired men with pitchforks and torches, a mob that had their sights set on one man with one mission, crucify the carpenter. Jesus knows this is about to go down, but his followers don't. He knows that Judas is already taking, taking every word and teaching of his out of context, twisting it to try to present Jesus as a threat to Jerusalem, saying that he had a plot to destroy the temple and take on Rome. He knows the priest in the Sanhedrin had been meeting around the clock, plotting to find some way to put an end to Jesus of Nazarene. He knows that they are afraid of what the movement might mean to their establishment and their authority. He knows they are backed against the wall, willing to do anything to protect and empower themselves. He knows as he walks through this Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, a kangaroo court is being assembled that has one mission, sentence Jesus to death. He knows that when all of this goes down in just a few hours, that while he is ready for it, his disciples were not at all ready for it. While he's giving all this information about the good things they're going to do, the comfort he's going to give, the joy they're going to find, the love they're going to share, while he's pumping them full of all these good teachings, he knows they are not going to know what hits them in a few hours. While he is ready to die, the disciples are not prepared for what's about to happen. It would be like a flock of sheep having their shepherd taken from them in the middle of the most vulnerable situation. It would be like a flock of sheep watching their shepherd be ripped away and torn to pieces by ravenous wolves, knowing they're next. Finding themselves helpless and defenseless, surrounded by those same wolves. They could never be properly prepared for what was about to happen. But before he tells them about this approaching challenge, he tells them about their future. He promised them that they would be blazing a trail for generations to come. They would be paving a way that generations to come would be following for the next thousands of years. And I think he did this intentionally, don't you? Before he makes them aware of the fire that's surrounding them, he sparks a greater fire within them. This cannot be understated. He gives them a glimpse at who they have been called to be and who they can be and are being equipped to be before he clues them in on the brewing storm. All that was intentional. In retrospect, this passage would be so jarring that, they, that it would make it oh so obvious as to what Jesus was getting at. So in light of all that, 
after knowing that Jesus taught them all the good things about their future, imagine what it would have felt like and what it would have sounded like when Jesus, as it approached midnight, turned to the disciples and said this in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus, well, I thought you're telling us about this big movement that's about to start. I mean, I don't know what we're doing out here in the middle of the night, and I don't know, you know why you've been really cryptic about all this. And Where did Judas go? You know, he's been gone for a while. I don't know what we're doing out here in the middle of the night, but Jesus, I mean, we're about to start the biggest movement known to man. I mean, you're bound to take over the world in just a few days. I mean, hey, we have been waiting for this, and all of a sudden you're springing this on us? The world hates us? I mean, don't you control the world? Aren't you in charge? Aren't you about to ascend to the highest throne? Aren't you about to take Jerusalem back and Rome? Aren't you about to just establish a kingdom? Who cares if they hate us? What can they do to us? Remember the world, remember the word that I said, as a servant is not greater than its master, they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's saying that in just a few hours, my own words are going to be twisted around, and they're going to use them against me, and they're going to kill me. And if they did that to me, they're going to do it to you. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, persecution? All these things will keep your, all, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the world might be fulfilled, word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when... And that's when they all like really stood up and thought, what did you say? When the time comes... You may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But I'm about to not be with you. I'm about to be taken from you. And you're going to watch. And it's going to be the most horrific thing you've ever seen. And after they get me, they're coming for you. Matthew, they're going to club you to death. Peter, they're going to turn you upside down and nail you to a cross, much like mine. James, they're going to kill you with a sword. Nathaniel, Andrew, they'll kill you too. John, they're going to try to kill you several times. They're going to put you in a pot of oil and heat it to its hottest possible state. Your skin won't survive, but you will. 
And after that, they're going to exile you to an island and you're going to die there all alone. Can you imagine what it must have felt like when all this began piling on them and all of it became so real to them, especially after just a few more hours would pass and Jesus was taken from them and just a few days later, Jesus was gone. After building up their faith and encouraging them in the mission, he drops the hammer about the opposition that's coming against them. Not just against them, but against the next few generations of Christians. For the next hundred or so years, Christians would be persecuted unmercifully by Rome. I mean, talk about the Arab being let out of the room. I mean, that's just what happened right here, right? I mean, it's like checking your credit card statement on Christmas morning. I mean, <laughs> you want to shut the party down, there's ways, right? Jesus builds them up and he informs them of this looming opposition and persecution that's going to come. And the only consolation is, oh, what they're going to do, y'all, what they're going to do to y'all is wrong. And yes, they'll be held accountable for it one day. But you may not get to live to see that day. And notice in verse 4. He says when the time comes, as if it's some sort of era, as if it's some sort of monumental occurrence, when they get the power and they have control. He says, I hope you remember my words when their hour comes. Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what Jesus was up to in this passage? Because it took me a long time to figure out what he was up to in this passage. I stared at my Bible for weeks and weeks and thought, what in the world were you thinking, Jesus? I mean, yeah, all this stuff happened. Yes, they lived through all this. Yes, many of them died. Yes, they suffered persecution. Yes, the world hated them. The world still hates Christians in many ways. I mean, but what good did it do to throw water on them like this? I mean, they were already going to lose you. And of course, that leads us to asking even more questions that we addressed this morning, right? Do you have any, any idea why he would bring this up? Why not mention the hate stuff before he told them about their mission? Well, of course, if he would have done that, they would have left, right? They wouldn't have not stuck around for the good stuff. I mean, but as soon as he told them this, I'm sure they forgot all the other stuff they said, right? He said, the world, when they heard the world is going to hate you, I'm sure they thought, well, come again? And if that didn't get them, when he said they're going to kill you, I'm sure that pretty much settled the deal for them, right? I'm sure that's when they thought, well, what in the world are we doing here? I mean, just a few days before, they were arguing on who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were arguing over who was going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, right? John and James asked their mom to go ask Jesus if they could sit at the right and the left hand, right? The greatest seats in the kingdom. I mean, just a few days before, they were fighting over who was the most important. And now this... And come on, doesn't it just sound so much in contrast to the previous text about all the good things, all the comfortable, lovely, joyful things about being a Christian? That's the point. Jesus galvanizes, as in lights up, sparks. He galvanizes his following against the assumption that they will be hated without reason or cause. He tells his followers that they are going to be hated and that was going to be the lot, their lot in life. Which, that makes his commandment that much more incredible, doesn't it? Stay with me here. Verse 8, he says, the world's going to hate you. 
But what does verse 17 say? These things I command you that you love one another. Oh, by the way, nobody's going to love you. But that should not change your mission. Do you see how those two verses just seem so in contrast with each other? But doesn't it seem like they come back to back and these passages come back to back for a very specific reason? His commandment to them was, go and love the world. Go and make a difference by loving one another, by being greater rather than by getting even. And when he tells them they're going to hate you, what do you think their instinct was? We're going to hate them. I mean, they're not going to get anything on us, Jesus. I mean, hey, if they take a swing, we're going to take a swing, right? I mean, what happens after this? Peter takes a swing, aiming for the guy's neck, but he gets the guy's ear, right? Nobody tries to cut an ear off, right? He was trying to cut the guy's head off. But he was a fisherman, not a swordsman. And Jesus says, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Listen, we're not about getting even. We're going to do greater than that. Jesus told Pilate, if my team was here to fight a war, they would already be fighting. He tells them they're going to go make a difference by loving, by being greater, that by this they would glorify God the most, and that what was in between them and their fulfillment was love. That the most fulfillment individually and most success collectively would come and be found through their commitment to love. Think about this. Why do you think he sets it up this way? He is telling them just before he's about to go and surrender and die for the sins of the world, here's how I do things. Here's how you're going to do things. Here's how the world's going to play. And they're not going to respond the way we wish they would, but we are not going to change our mission. And listen, Christian, listen so clearly. If we don't make our mind up about what our mission is and what our agenda is, we will give in and we will give up and we will trade love for hate in a minute. We've got to be on guard. That's why Jesus says, we're not going to fight back on their level. We're going to love when it'd be easier and understood to hate. That's why he begins this whole thing by saying, by this they'll know that you're mine, by loving one another. He says, guys, I know what you're thinking. They hate us, so we'll hate them. They, build, they, they come against us, we'll come against them. That's not how it works. We're not going to fight back on their level. We're going to love when it'd be easier to hate. We're going to continue to see the value of everyone when, even when they don't reciprocate. When they don't value us, we're not going to budge. We're not going to change our motive because God's value of everyone does not change. And even when we hurl insults at Him, He just gives love to us. And we can't comprehend that and it's too good for us and it's too sacred for us, but God doesn't change His tone and we aren't going to either. We're going to continue to value everyone even when they don't reciprocate we're going to continue to show everyone god's love even when they don't show it back or respond and this is when it gets hard isn't it because you try to love somebody that throws it back in your face the wrong way that doesn't feel good does it and there's something in you maybe there's maybe it's not in you but it's in me there's something in me that gets nasty 
and rolls my sleeves up and says, hey, I can play this game too. I can use those words too. I can do worse than you did. But Jesus is not so. We're going to continue to show love to everybody even when they don't show it or respond to it. We're going to continue to choose righteousness even when everyone else chooses sin. And oh, this one's hard, isn't it? Because when the world lines up and says, we don't care about what it means to you or what it means to me, we're going to do what we want to do. Christians, we say, nuh-uh, I'm not going to sin with you or against you because I love you too much. And yes, I might feel like doing otherwise. And yes, you might feel like doing otherwise and do otherwise, but I'm not. We're going to continue to share the good news, even when their response is not good at all. Even when they hate us, we're not changing the message when it be so tempting to change it. In a world full of and fueled by hate, we're going to be full of and fueled by love. In a world that's chasing after personal gain, selfish desire, motivated by, motivated by every wrong reason, we're going to be motivated by what glorifies God. And what glorifies God, you ask, when we love one another. But doesn't it burn him up when they hate us? Yes. But you know what equally burns him up? When we hate them. You're not looking for approval or acceptance from this world. You're not looking to gauge the value or success by the metrics of this world. You're going to do all that you do based on what God has said and what Jesus would do. What motivates us? Not being accepted, not being applauded, not being praised, but by being accepted by God, not this world. Think about this in reference to what Jesus said earlier on in Matthew. And just hear what he said and think about if you're doing this for the world's approval, I mean, good luck. Matthew 5, look at what he said. You've heard it said, you shall love your enemy and hate your, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now listen, if you've got experience doing this, what good does that do, usually? None at all. I've loved tons of my enemies and they don't even pay attention. Right? I prayed for those that persecute you, and they just persecute me more, right? And God forbid I've never been persecuted by any comparison to most people in the world. But come on, we can relate, right? I've loved people and prayed for people, and it doesn't move the needle at all. But why are we supposed to do it? Because we're going to get some response? I mean, we hope so, but that's not why we do it. So that you may be sons or daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're doing this because God in heaven makes the sunrise for everybody. And sends rain for everybody. He doesn't hold it back from the bad. He doesn't give it more to the good. He's equal in His love and provision for all people. Because He loves all people because they're all His. Again, we're not that good. I'm not that good. You might be, but I'm not that good. I'm not that nice. I'm not that loving, but God is. And if I'm ever going to be any more like Him than I am now, it's going to have to start by loving people and praying for people that make it the most difficult to love and pray for them. 
And again, I'm doing it for them, but you know who I'm doing it for most of all? For myself, because I want to be more like God. And I want to make a difference in this world. And I can cross my arms and say, well, they're not responding, so I'm not doing it. And the only person that hurts is me. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Come on. If you just love people that love you back, what difference is that making? That's not making you any more like God. It's just making you more like yourself. And that's not the goal, is it? You can't do that if you're doing it for how delightful and lovely people are in response. People will take your charity and spit it back in your face. To be nice. And if you base your motivation on their response, you will quit before you ever get started. No, we need much higher motivation. Like Jesus concludes by saying, You must therefore, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you want to be complete and whole like God is, you're going to have to be loving toward people that are not like you. That's not easy, is it? Not at all. I think it's ingenious and incredible that Jesus tells us to love each other and that no one should be exempt from value or demonstration of God's love. And then he informs us that we may, may face a little opposition for doing this. In fact, we may face a whole lot of opposition for doing this. The reason for it? The devil wants to ruin God's party. Because he knows what God's love has done and can do. He hopes, oh, so desperately that you will stoop to his level and forsake love for hate. So be very, listen very carefully. Satan hopes that he can get you so riled up by the opposition that you abandon the mission and cease to do any good and bring any glory to God. What is his mission? To get you off of your mission. So when you get riled up at somebody and you think, well, I can play that game, and you cross the line and you get in the mud and you roll your sleeves up and you start playing on their level, you know who you're pleasing? And I know, I know, I know, I know, but, you know, I don't, that's not what I'm thinking about in that moment, Justin. I mean, I'm thinking about me and getting even. I know you are. That's why we need to know this. That's why Jesus says, please remember these words. Because when you're in that moment, and you're in that situation, and the, the, the t intensity and the pressure is all around you, you're not going to think straight. And you're going to do things that you aren't proud of. Or maybe you are proud of, but let's talk about it from the perspective. You're not going to be proud of what you're about to do. And if you don't keep your guard up and remember the mission, you will miss out. Church, we can't make this grave mistake. There is too much on the line. And come on, many of us have already crossed this line, and haven't we? Think about the landscape in our country right now. Think about how fired up we get when we face opposition, and we face plenty of it. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy being a Christian in America, but it's far easier here than it is anywhere else in the world. I'll say that. But it's relative, and I don't live anywhere else. I live here, so it's hard for me because I'm here, right? Think about the opposition. Think about how riled up we get when we get opposed. And what is the first and major temptation we face? The desire is to give up and give in and play dirty. 
And this is so important in a hypercharged political climate like we live in right now. This world is always seeking to denounce God's institutions and his convictions. The goal is not to lure the goal is to lure us into a battle that cannot be won. Jesus makes it clear in this text that they hate us because they hate him. So why is he telling us that? Don't take the hatred personally. Because if we internalize, if we take it personally, we internalize it and we exchange God's embedded love with the hatred of the enemy. So the second you take that hatred personally, and it's so hard not to, right? The second you take it personally, the second you internalize it and you exchange God's love for hate. Remember, he says in verse 25, they hated him without a cause. Hate doesn't need a reason to hate. But we have a reason to love, don't we? Because what God has done for us and called us to do. And he asked us in verse 26 and 27 to bear witness to what we've been called to do. Bear witness to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus when we're in these moments when it'd be easier to do what, we, what our flesh says to do. Let the Holy Spirit keep you inspired and motivated and fight fire with fire. Listen to this almost impossible to read with a straight face scripture from Romans. Repay no one evil for evil. I mean, come on, is that a joke? I mean, come on, who, no, don't raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Who in here hasn't repaid evil for evil? That's what we do as kids, right? They took from me, so I take from them, right? I had to put out a fire with the kids at the beach because they were fighting with each other who was playing with plushies, right? And I helped them out because I play with them too. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but I, I mean, that's what kids do, right? It's instinct. They threw a rock at me, so I throw a rock at them, right? They punch, so I punch harder. That's what we do. That's what society trains us to do. But repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. Who's all? Everybody, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So here's what Paul is saying. Not only should you do what is right inside of all, but if you can, cross the line and love them and be personally friends to them. And I know that's not possible in every situation because there's things that happen that just can't be, can't be you know, mended right in relationships that just fall apart and it'd be better to separate. But hey, here's the thing. Here's how extreme Paul is with this commandment. Our goal is not to just kind of coexist. Our goal is to be in relationship with. Worst case scenario, that's not possible. And hey, that happens, right? That's the world we live in. It's fallen. But don't you see how, how, how extreme this commandment is? When Paul says all, he means all. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. I mean, just when somebody's not looking, right? Or when somebody's looking. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God because he said vengeance is mine. Sidebar. There's a hell. You know why there's a hell? For God to punish sin that was not under the blood of Jesus. You know what happens when you avenge yourselves? You are trying to say, God, you're not capable of taking care of this sin. Let me do it. Right? 
So when we are tempted to avenge ourselves, our prayer should be, God, please bring that under your blood. But the encouragement is, if they don't repent, and if it's not under the blood, God is going to punish that sin. And I'm not happy about somebody suffering, but I take refuge in knowing that my God is going to punish sin, and I'm not going to go unvindicated. And that's good, that's, that's encouraging. That, that makes me feel better about the world because when people are evil and there's plenty of evil and people do awful sick things, God's going to punish them for it. But I shouldn't try to be God. Right? Never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now listen, if my enemy's hungry, I want to watch him starve, right? If my enemy's thirsty, I want to watch him be parched. He wouldn't help me, would he? But by doing those kind things, I'm heaping coals on his head, as in making his conscience heavy. Because the goal is to win somebody to Jesus, right? And if I treat them like not Jesus would, it's not ever going to win them to anybody, right? So the goal is to love always. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I got to think when Paul wrote all those verses together, he looked at it and thought, you know, maybe I should space these apart. That's a lot to tell somebody in three lines. I mean, they're not going to do one of these and all back to back to back. I mean, come on, God, maybe we should write a whole other letter about this. No, I mean, bam, bam, bam. I mean, it just makes you feel bad, right? Because we're not that good and nobody is. But this is what we strive for. Here's what this comes down to. Don't allow the world's rejection or objection become greater than God's acceptance. You know why you're tempted to give up on love and choose hate? Because the world rejects you and objects to you and that offends you and you take it personally. And that makes you feel like you're not accepted by anybody. But that blinds you from knowing that God has accepted you. And don't ever allow the world's objection, and it's hard, isn't it? Or the world's rejection, and that's tough, isn't it? And it makes me sick when I feel like the world's against me and has rejected what I'm trying to put out there, and that's for good. But I can't allow that rejection and that objection to get bigger than God's acceptance because nothing is bigger or greater than God's acceptance. We don't need the world's approval. We have heaven's. Your flesh thinks believing this is settling for something, letting go of something, and that's exactly what it is. But what you're letting go of pales in comparison to that which you're obtaining and to who is embracing you. Yes, you're letting go. Yes, you're settling. Yes, you're letting somebody off the hook. But you know what you're getting in exchange? Far greater rewards than the petty pitiful things we get from getting even and hating people. The devil dangles bait in front of every Christian every day. He offers candy of approval and power to every believer every day. Political influence, personal prosperity, popularity. He will even borrow things from Christianity if he can get you to succumb to aligning with him. And here's what I mean. He will pretend like he's for some of the things you're for if he gets you on his side that involves hating somebody or being against somebody or getting even against somebody or demonizing somebody or vilifying somebody. You see what I mean? He will say what you want him to say if he gets you on his team and if it gets you acting nasty and hateful like him. Don't take 
debate. This happens far more than we realize. Satan will jettison or throw away his standards if it means getting you to join him. He will pretend like he's a Christian all day long if it gets you to join him. The question is, will you throw away your standards if it means getting even or rising above somebody else? But, but well, we've got to do that to get ahead. We've got to do that to get even. We've got to do that to make it somewhere, to, 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 to you know, beat them and, and stop them. And I hear all that. But you know what matters most to me? My standards as a Christian. And I can't trade those in. He knows his evil leaven will get rid of whatever good he adopted. Likewise, the evil we accept will eventually drive out whatever good is left. So be careful. When it comes to the allure of the world's approval, don't take the bait if it involves hate. You don't need it. You have Jesus. But, but if I do that, they'll accept me or they'll approve me or that'll help me get ahead of them and that'll help me get even against them. No, no, no. You don't need that. You have Jesus. Protect the mission. Love without limits. Don't align yourself with hate of any kind. May we remember these words when the pressure gets heavy, when the world's fire gets hot. May we never settle for hate because Jesus didn't. Though Judas and Pilate stoked the fire and tried to get Jesus too, Jesus did not settle for hate. You know what both Judas and Pilate knew because they were being controlled by the devil? They knew he was God. The council didn't know he was God. The religious leaders didn't know he was God. Jesus, Judas and Pilate knew he was God in a body. Satan knew he was God. They wanted to draw out vengeance and retribution. They wanted to draw out an outpouring of judgment on the world because they wanted to prevent salvation from coming. Jesus could have been celebrated by angels. Perhaps he could have spared a few sinners that would sing his praises. But remember, at the beginning of this whole section, he looked out amongst the crowd of disciples. He knew he was going to heaven. He knew he was from God. He knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew he was large and in charge. So he took off his outer garment and got on his knees and washed their feet to show them the full measure of his love. He didn't fall for the bait because love was too essential and too important. He showed the full measure of his love because that's what it would take to save the most, to save the lost. Let me just say this. Sometimes when we talk about this stuff, it feels like we have an identity crisis in the world. Well, you know, I can't align with them because they have that and I can't. Listen, that's okay. In this world, the only identity we need and the only label we need and the only thing we need to look for for acceptance and approval is the label of, I belong to God. I'm God's child. I'm a Christian. When Jesus surrendered, the devil continued to prod his men in hopes that God the Father might be enraged beyond the point of no return. But Jesus made sure that this moment would be remembered for nothing but his love. And when Satan had his men hurl insults at Jesus and try to stoke the wrath of God on Calvary, remember what Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that moment, love overcame the hate of the enemy.
In that moment, hate lost. And Satan would forever be in misery because God so loved the world and the rest is history. So what will you choose? Yeah, I know there's hatred out there and I know there's opposition and there's rejection and it's not fun to deal with. But will you settle? Will you trade your standards to play on the world's level? Or will you bear this cross of love and will you choose the higher, better road that says to the world, I see your hate and I raise it something better. I raise you the love of God because that's the only thing that can raise all of us from our sin. So let's choose love. Let's choose love when it'd be easier and it might would feel better to choose hate because we're not trying to win these little battles. We trust that Jesus has already won the biggest battle. And we just want to be on his side every day. We pray for you. Father, this is so convicting because it's so practical and so personal. Lord, every day my nasty side comes out and I just want to show people what I feel like they deserve. I want to bite back and bark back and fight back. And I want to get even. And I want to get above And in a world that is so divided and so hostile and so at each other's throats, God, it's hard. It's so hard. Yet, I think of what Jesus did whenever he was surrounded by the enemy. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Satan was using men left and right to put him on a cross. Satan was stoking the fire trying to get vengeance to be poured out on Calvary and yet Jesus stood in the place of our sin and Jesus took that vengeance for us to give us nothing but the love of God and likewise God as we face hatred and opposition help us not to settle for anything less help us not to trade love for hate help us not to take the bait of looking for approval of this world because we have your approval and that's all we need And God, it may not get the best response and it may not get the ideal results. But if it makes us more like you, that's what matters most. And Father, that's what we're after. To be like you. To see the world. And to show the world the love of God. We ask all of this in your holy and amazing name. Amen.